Hello and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker, where we try and read the news runes for the next seven days. I'm Alex Andreu. Joining me this morning to discuss the week ahead is political commentator and time writer Yasmin Sirhan. Good morning, Yasmin. Good morning, Alex. One story, of course, dominates the news and will continue to for weeks to come. The passing of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II and the accession to the throne of King Charles III. Yasmin, why do you think it came as such a shock to the country despite her advanced years? Yeah, it, it was one of those quite strange stories where I think we were being prepared for it throughout the day. And mm. obviously this, as you mentioned, is a 96-year-old woman. That's pretty fantastic innings. So, you know, the, the nation was was aware that she had stepped back from a lot of her royal duties and, and you know, she, she'd had COVID, was clearly, you know, perhaps not doing as well as, as we would have remembered. But nonetheless, I think the enormity of the loss was, I think, mm. what caused the most shock. And if anything, you know, speaking to mourners outside of Buckingham Palace last week, people seemed to be, I think, more shocked by just how much it had hit them. Perhaps a lot of people, I think, weren't really expecting to be moved in the way that they were. Mm. Yes, I have to say the reaction has been probably more somber and less sort of hysterical than mm. I had expected with the death of Princess Diana as, as the clear sort of past reference point. Mm. Um, with very few exceptions, the country has largely come together in its grief, it seems to me. Is that your impression? Oh, 100%. I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> like you, I'm, I'm on Twitter and I occasionally see the, the odd American voice kind of interjecting at a time where, frankly, to all my Americans, if there are any of you listening, it's not the time for us. Yeah, I mean, everyone, it, it seemed that, you know, you really, it struck me that you don't need to be a royalist or a monarchist to understand the immense significance that the Queen had, that, you know, she meant a lot of things to a lot of people. And if nothing else, I think she was just kind of, I think a lot of people have said this, but I'll repeat it, a, a symbol of stability, a constant. Um, yeah throughout our lives and and those before us. I mean, you know, I was thinking about this just yesterday because obviously on the television, so much of the British news broadcasters are are releasing all this, you know, footage from her life, especially her early years. And it occurred to me that, you know, for, for generations gone past, some of these people will have seen her grow up, not just, you know, being queen throughout all these decades, but becoming queen, especially mm -hmm. at such a young age. So, I think it is an incredibly moving moment for the country and a realization, I think, that, you know, the, the end of an actual era, this Elizabethan age has come to an end and mm -hmm. trying to sort of understand, okay, a lot has changed in recent years. What is it going to look like when we don't have this familiar woman at the helm? Yes. And maybe the fact that, you know, she was pictured so recently sort of receiving the resignation of the previous prime minister and inviting Liz Truss to form a government. I mean, this was only two days before she passed away. And I think that may have given false reassurance to people that, you know, stories about her health were, you know, exaggerated and that she looked fine and all of that. And I, I think it's the proximity of the change of government with mm. her death that sort of combined to... to increase the shock in some way. There's been, of course, world reaction from leaders, from the global press. Does anything jump out to you from that side of things? Yeah, 
you know, there are so many of the statements were, were very moving. I think a lot of world leaders felt compelled to share some really touching anecdotes. Mm. You know, Jacinda Ardern was was talking about her correspondences with the Queen during lockdown and, and the Queen sort of this this great story, which I won't try to recount because she does it so much better, but but really just kind of talking about the Queen as a person and, and the empathy that she felt for people like, you know, that she wasn't this sort of distant figure kind of behind the palace gates. But the the statement that I was actually, I think, most moved by was Francis Emmanuel Macron. It's very clear that it's it's not just Britain and perhaps the wider Commonwealth that's mourning the Queen's death. I think a lot of other countries are are mourning as well. I think France is one of them. A, a number of countries that are, are not connected to the Commonwealth have even declared days of mourning. I think Lebanon was one of them. So yeah. it, it's been really striking to see the global response, I, I think it's, you know, as someone who's not from here as well, I think it took me took me off guard a little bit just to see how the, the incredible impact that she's had. I mean, she was, I guess, Britain's best foreign dignitary in a way. Well, I mean, she was probably the world's most famous person, to be honest. You mentioned being in this country as a foreigner at this time, and I'm a foreigner too. How has that felt for you? Sort of observing from a from a relative emotional dis- distance, I guess. Yeah, I you know I'll, I'll be honest. I was a little surprised by how I felt, kind of immediately finding out. Um, I, as it so happens, I was on the tube heading to Buckingham Palace for work. I caught a bit of signal at one of the stations for just a moment, enough time to see the royal family's Twitter account having announced it. I think fifty seconds prior, and you know, obviously, as a journalist, y- you do at times feel like you have to have a bit of objective distance from the subject or at least enough to do your job because in the moment it certainly requires it. I think I was struck by just how intensely I wanted to talk about it with people. But the fear of (laughs) speaking to strangers on the tube, having lived here for five years now, that that fear is deeply ingrained, was overpowering. But I think more than anything, I just didn't want to be the person to break it to them. I, I didn't want to, to kind of bear that responsibility mm-hmm. of saying, hey, guys, like, did you hear the news? But yeah, I mean, overall, I think I would say it's been pretty moving as a foreigner to to see the immense reaction. Because even though I, of course, you know, dreaded this day, both from a professional and personal standpoint, I think I didn't even fully appreciate or understand the emotional impact that it was going to have on on a lot of people around me. And indeed, even just over the weekend, having to go back to Buckingham Palace, I mean, it was busy on Thursday night. But when I tell you on Saturday afternoon, I could not walk through and I had to get to the media tents. Like, it, just so many people. You're right. I mean, I, I think for me, I've been here much longer than you for 30 years. And even for me, it was quite surprising in that it exposed, I think, how emotional the connection is. Uh, yeah. to the monarchy it's not you know it's not an intellectual thing it's a it's a bond forged really from very early childhood and and i saw that play out you know i saw my other half who's not particularly a royalist or particularly even interested in the royal family went to pieces and it it just i think emphasized how deeply ingrained from a very young age, this emotional connection to the monarchy is as the the constant point that sort of links everything else. On practical matters, Yasmin, what are the, the, the sort of the arrangements for the next few days? 
Yeah, so we're we're basically in in a the the period preceding the Queen's uh, state funeral, which will be held next week on Monday, September the nineteenth. That's going to be a, a period of public mourning, um, and that day will be a bank holiday across the whole of the United Kingdom. Though, as I understand it, there is no statutory entitlement to time off, so it's worth checking if if that's something that applies to you. But mm-hmm. um, as the government put it, this will allow individuals, businesses, and other organizations to pay their respects to Her Majesty and and commemorate her reign. And that will mark the final day of the period of national mourning. Of course, the period of royal mourning, just, you know, remembering, of course, that this is um, really a family loss uh, for for the royal family, is going to extend a week beyond the funeral. As you mentioned earlier, the Queen's coffin is going to be lying in state um, from Wednesday afternoon, I believe, to the, until her funeral, um, during which time the public will be invited to come and pay their respects. It is estimated that hundreds of thousands of people um, are going to be turning out. Um, I believe cabinet ministers are anticipating up to 20-hour queues sneaking around central London for people to, to go see her. So yeah, it's, it's going to be really interesting to see how the capital is. Now, on to the accession of mm. King Charles III, as he's now I I had always perceived the the king is dead long live the king as a sort of expression a metaphor for the coldness of a change in political leadership you know for how quickly people m- move on but observing the literal thing in action was mm-hmm. bracing it, it quite literally from the moment of her majesty's death another set of wheels set in motion for the constitutional handover to King Charles III, I mean, considering it involves a human being feeling loss and grief, it it really is quite brutal, isn't it? Uh, As a Republican, as a small R Republican, I think for the first time, I have to say I began to see some advantage to the sort of certainty, clarity, and speed of that Darwinian inherited process. What, What do you think? Yeah, I was also struck by it. I was even more struck by the number of broadcasters who understandably kept tripping up over their words, starting Mm. to say, God save the queen and having to quickly change. Um, But the nomenclature of this country is completely changed. I think we'll get onto it in a minute. But I mean, yeah, it's, it's incredibly striking just how quickly, but you, but then, you know, when you sort of sit back and think this is an institution that runs on tradition, that runs on, you know, continuity. So in a way, it almost makes perfect sense that it would not skip a beat. But I think a lot of people, and and I was certainly among them, will have learned that, you know, there were a lot of service pieces, I think, saying, when will Charles be king? The answer is immediately, just as the queen herself sort of went to sleep a princess and woke up to the news that her father had passed as Queen Elizabeth. So yeah, it's it really is quite striking to learn about all the (laughs) the mechanics Mm, of mm. this process. What's your sense of the the sort of first impressions and perceptions of how King Charles has handled this, his first address to the nation, etc.? Yeah, I, I tuned into the dress, and and I thought he struck a really good tone. Um, you know, I didn't. Perhaps this is because I'm an American. Perhaps it's because I didn't really want to give it much thought. Um, I hadn't given a lot of thought prior to the Queen's passing of of what a King Charles would mean, or or the the tone it would set. But but I thought his statement generally was very moving. Um, you know, he made 
a lot of comments. I think one in particular that stood out was with regard to sort of his the past 70 years, really, of, of being mm-hmm. the Prince of Wales, but also being kind of an activist prince and and how he had sort of made this clear distinction that he understands that his role is about to change and therefore his life is about to change and the way he 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 goes about leading it um, is going to change as well to fit the role. So I think throughout and just seeing him in these addresses, seeing him go through the, the formal um, all the form- the formalities um, with regard to him becoming king over the weekend and in the coming days. I think what I always come back to is the fact that this is a man who just lost his mom and he needs to do all these things and be in the public eye. And I'm sure the outpouring of, of grief and support is is perhaps very comforting to him and his family, but it's just, yeah, it just kind of boggles the mind that this is not an yeah. individual who has the luxury of getting to sort of mourn in peace and in and, 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 and private so I, all those things considered, yeah, I think he's doing well. Yeah, and I guess from a personal perspective, this is the one thing, the one emotional thing about his own mother's story that he had, you know, he could never really understand until he experienced it because that's how it happens. Mm-hmm. You know, your your accession is accompanied by the profound loss of a of a parent that you love exactly as has happened to her so you know on a on a sort of personal emotional level i think there's a a sort of sad but beautiful symmetry to his finally getting that aspect of his mother's life you know how she mm. be, became a uh, monarch so the, there are now sort of practical changes. The, I mean, the list is endless. From the seals have to change, the the currency has to be reprinted, the coins reminted. I mean, everything from Her Majesty's government becomes His Majesty's government, Her Majesty's opposition, Queen's Council, you know, all the country's QCs, 70 years later become KCs, the... The anthem, I mean, first time people sing the anthem at a football match, I would think will be just an extraordinarily strange experience. But there are also practical political effects, aren't there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have to remember, and it's (laughs) last Monday feels like many months ago now, but Mm. Liz Truss has only just become prime minister. And, you know, in, in the early days of that premiership, I was writing about, you know, her and we've spoken about her daunting entry, all the things she'd have to do. And I think what's interesting about sort of what's happened since is that all kind of went out the window, not because those pressing issues aren't still there. They absolutely are. But I think they're not going to be given as much attention, um, mm. certainly not by the media um, and, and perhaps not even by the, the broader public. I think their attention has been drawn elsewhere. In a way, maybe that gives Liz Truss's government a bit of breathing room in that yeah. they now have time to really shore up their offer, especially on the energy crisis. I mean, we, we already have seen some snippets about what that's going to entail um, mm. in terms of the support and the cost. But but in terms of the the, the political scrutiny and, and those, I mean, you know, I, I believe they were talking about that bill, if I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong, but they no, were- No, no, they were, yeah. When, yeah, when- When, when the I, note was passed around, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, I think, what first certainly tipped Twitter off. I'd seen things about the Queen, I was like, oh no, hopefully not, surely not. 
So yeah, I mean, that in, in that respect, obviously Liz Truss as prime minister has a lot to do. In the meantime, she's going to be attending services related to the queen across the country. Um, but at some point, they're they're going to need to address all this. So I I I would imagine that they also want to maybe make use of this time, where the public's attention is elsewhere, to really focus on these crises because they're not going to go away, and they're certainly not going to wait for um, a period of mourning to pass. I mean, al- alternatively, I guess the possibility is that Liz Truss has just spent an enormous amount of money, approaching two hundred billion pounds on this plan and not many people really get to find out about it because it didn't even get a single day on the front pages and all that. Parliament is not sitting. That will delay measures that help with energy bills because actually the legislation that puts it in place still has to be debated and passed. The Liberal Democrat conference, as I understand it, has been cancelled because that's the first one of the season. The Labour and Tory conferences will go ahead, although in a much muted way, devoid of champagne receptions and parties, etc. And that means that the the debates and legislation about help with the energy bills won't happen until after the conference season break, in sort of three weeks' time, unless something is done to sort of recall Parliament in between and somehow engineer it that way. I think as a last point, not I mean, not to be disrespectful, but it is obviously a pertinent constitutional consideration. What does this do to the many campaigns for self-rule around the wider Commonwealth, um, because there had been quite a few. Yeah, I mean, the Queen presided over both, an, you know, a, a Commonwealth and sort of the remnants of an empire that was already shrinking, mm. Um, mm. given the extent of her popularity and, and as we've just discussed, you know, how the impact that she had around the world, I wouldn't necessarily expect that to change under Charles. I don't necessarily know if I expect it to accelerate either, but I think that is perhaps a natural process that is going to happen regardless of who's at the head of state. Um, and, you know, a lot of attention is going to be paid to to how Charles governs and, and how he does things differently, to what extent he keeps things the same. Um, this is obviously going to be an area of, of immense focus, but... Um, I think it is just worth bearing in mind that this was something, a process that started even when the queen was in power. So, um, you know, in in some ways, I think it may almost be out of his control. But I think obviously people and and perhaps even the Commonwealth are are going to be paying attention to what he says and how he says it. So it it will be interesting to watch, but it's difficult to prejudge his his, his kingship, I guess. Yeah, uh, Reuters reports last night, uh, early this morning, that Antigua and Barbuda, their head, has announced that a referendum on becoming a republic will take place within the next three years. And so maybe we are seeing the beginning of a sort of um, wave of, of such votes. Who knows, we will see. 
let's move on to other things because there are other very, very big stories going on and perhaps actually not getting the attention they should be from British media, the foremost of which is the Ukraine counteroffensive currently going on. As we understand it from Ukrainian military, they have made a, a massive push in the last 48 hours. They've retaken over 3,000 square kilometers of territory, including and past Kharkiv in eastern Ukraine. And they continue their push, aiming, I guess, to push into Luhansk and Donetsk and cut off those more southern Russian military forces from their resupply lines. How significant is what is going on, Yasmin, do you think? Very significant, to say the least. And I think you're right, this this hasn't gotten as much attention as it perhaps would if, if certainly here in, in Britain, at least, we weren't um, so distracted with sort of the domestic goings on. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's absolutely significant. I think, you know, this has been a protracted conflict exceeding six months. So to see such significant gain on the Ukrainian side, I think is such a big boost of morale, um, not just for them, but I think for, for their supporters and in the West to, to see that. I mean, I, I know Russia has been pretty tight-lipped about what's been going on. I think I saw one video in which someone in the Russian military basically described that they were regrouping um, and, and were encouraging Ukrainian citizens in the affected areas to go flee to Russia. So um, it, it is it's definitely one to watch. And I think it's going to be interesting to see just how far this lasts and how far Ukraine gets and, and whether this signals a turning point in the war. Um, I think mm. we, we may well see um, in, in the coming weeks, but, you know, um, certainly in, in the interviews that President Zelensky has given, he's he's made it very clear that Ukraine's ambition isn't just to to retake the the territories that Russia had taken um, in this war, but but to even go so far as as to retake the territories taken in twenty fourteen. I mean, you know, Crimea. Whether the Ukrainian army gets that far, I, I think is does remain to be seen. But yeah, it, it is it is I think encouraging. Of course, I mean it's a. It's a conflict that is on a knife edge, but having followed this story quite closely, I mean, I think this was fairly unexpected. I, I can't remember a single, you know, military expert giving opinion on this, thinking that this was a real, I mean, a lot of people thought there would be a, a sort of slight pushback that Ukraine would try and consolidate the gains it has made. But I don't, I haven't seen anyone predicting the kind of massive push that has happened. And certainly 10 days ago when Ukraine announced that it would mount an offensive to retake Kherson, which is down south, everyone was quite puzzled as to why are they announcing this? Because it just means that Russia will send all their troops to the south, which they <laughs> did. And it turns out that it was just a straightforward bluff. The, you know, they announced very, very widely that they were going to attack to the south. Russia moved a significant amount of its troops, and then they attacked to the east, which says, I think, quite a lot of things about the quality of Russian intelligence, mm. if nothing else. That that you know, this this 
entirely different movement of troops were, was going on than the one declared, and they still sort of fell for it. It just seems extraordinary. There is also a sense that resistance within Russia is mounting. There are a few councils, including one in Moscow, calling for Putin to step down. There are widespread reports of mass disobedience and desertion in the Russian army. Two months ago, when Biden spoke about regime change, everyone sort of laughed at him and said he was being delusional. Is it now time to start whispering about what defeat looks like for Russia? I mean, I only a couple of weeks ago, I did a story looking at at the six-month mark at Russian public opinion, what we could see of it anyway, to try and understand how Russians were feeling at this stage. And I guess the reason that I sort of am perhaps maybe skeptical is too strong of a word, but certainly cautious is the fact that, you know, speaking to the Levada Center in Moscow, which is Russia, what's considered Russia's last sort of independent polling agency, it was very clear that the, the vast majority of Russians polled, and even if, with that number taking into account perhaps those who who say what is expedient rather than what they really think, still a majority not only support what's going on in Ukraine, but 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 Vladimir Putin's um, popularity is still quite high. Um, but what was even more significant than that, because that was perhaps not surprising when you take into account Russia's mm. media ecosystem and, and the, the way that the Russian public gets information, was the fact that a lot of people are actually also tuning out of the war. So people are bored of it. Their lives, d- despite you know the exit of international businesses and things like that, hadn't really be, been affected in such a way that would prompt the kind of you know, full-scale protests that perhaps some of us um, had anticipated or or even, you know, in some cases even hoped for in the early days of the war. Of course, this is a different change. And, and I think, you know, the Russian media is going to, the state-controlled media, of course, is going to want to find ways to spin this and find someone to blame if things start of do course. start to go south. But it is worth remembering that at least as far as the Russian public is concerned, they're not going to see their soldiers in the military um, quitting en masse um, or deserting. Um, they're not even necessarily going to see a lot of the criticisms that Putin is receiving now. So it is significant, I think, when when kind of the more senior people around Putin start to say something. But until then, mm. I'm, I'm a little skeptical about the ability for this to, to break him, as it were. Yeah. Okay, well, a few more stories to very, very quickly mop up. And this is as a pointer for listeners to go and read up more about these stories rather than um, a a sort of reflection of their importance, because there is a lot of other news going on. But in our limited time, we can only touch on these. One, I think, is protests over the shooting of Chris Carber. He was a a father-to-be in South London, reportedly rammed and boxed in by police on Monday night, killed by a single shot fired through the windscreen of the car. As I said, the protest over this has been growing. Stormzy joined the protest at the weekend, which, which seemed to generate quite a lot of press attention. The IOPC has launched a homicide investigation and dis- disciplinary proceedings. So it's certainly not something that they're treating as, uh, you know, a justified thing at the moment. And 
I think you've only been here five years, Yasmin, so you went around in the London mm. riots 11 years ago. But the parallels with Mark Duggan, um, which began the London riots, are quite striking. And there's something instinctively that tingles in my journalistic sort of makeup that says this is one to watch because the country is feeling quite emotionally raw and is in a, mm. in a sort of state of flux with everything that's happened recently, a change of monarch, a change of government with the space of two days. So this is something that I hope doesn't blow up, but has all the potential to be that spark in the Tinder box. There's also been an election in Sweden. That is something we would encourage people to read up on. It really is quite extraordinary exit polls, first predicted victory for the, the incumbent sort of left-wing coalition with a center-left party coming first. But results later suggested that the right-wing bloc, led by really quite a far-right politician, uh, might actually narrowly win the Sweden Democrats, as they're called. So the result is so close that I think we will have to wait for every single vote to be counted and may not know the precise result until Wednesday. But that is certainly one to watch. And also reminding people that there are elections in Italy two weeks' time where, again, the far-right party, Fratelli d'Italia, led by Meloni, are predicted to narrowly win, although, again, those polls are very, very close and very in flux. So maybe a worrying pattern beginning to form there and maybe uh, connected to the energy crisis that Europe is experiencing. The other two things is that the the EU via Maros Shevchevic has made a fresh offer on the Northern Ireland border that will reduce physical customs checks across the Irish Sea and make it bring it very close to effectively what the UK is demanding. So that seems to be an an offer of peace to the new Prime Minister. Will she take it, having um deployed such harsh rhetoric on the issue. I think she would be a fool not to, but she wouldn't be the first fool to lead this country. That's start your week. Thank you for putting in the early shift this week and not an easy one at that. Thanks for having me. And listeners, thank you for joining us. There's a bunker every day, so don't forget to subscribe. And if you're enjoying our work, you can support us from as little as £2 a month on the funding platform Patreon. Just search Bunker Podcast Patreon. Thanks for listening. Join us tomorrow. Start Your Week from the Bunker was written and presented by Alex Andreu with Yasmin Serhan. The producers were Yelena Sofronievich, Jacob Archbold and Alex Reese. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis with music and audio production by me, Jay Bailey. The group editor was Andrew Harrison and The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>